Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Not to stay saved. I'm doing it because I'm already a child of God. And so it's because I already am saved. I do that. Now that's the motivation. Now remember, folks, listen carefully. I hope you're catching this. From Luke to Acts, and from the beginning of Acts through the rest of Acts, you're going through what is known as a transition period. So the truths are beginning to pick up steam as we would go further into Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, and all the way through to the end. So there's a transition. So there's a little bit of what we might call theological squirreliness because it's hard to put it all together. But once you understand things are transitioning from one to the other to something new, you begin to sense, oh, I do see how it all is fitly framed together. And I said that to say this. He's talking about motivation as we're now getting ready to live a life of service to him in proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection to the world and to keep us focused. We're not focusing on a world that's going to accept us because it won't. We're not going to focus on Christians who will accept or not accept us. We're to focus on none other than Jesus Christ who's going to come back and to whom we'll have to give answer for our life. So that's the motivation in this passage, and it's beautiful. Now, I'd like to end with point number four. And I've uh, got to watch your time because we're going to have a wonderful communion service. It's open communion for all believers. It will not take long, but it will be a meaningful time. So let's follow along. I want you to pick it up at, um, at verse tw- uh, 13 now. So they returned to Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's journey, which means they could walk about 2,000 feet, and that's how far it was. So where did these uh, apostles go? And when they had entered into the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. I thought about, okay, what's the upper room? Where were they staying? My opinion is that they went up to the place where they had the Last Supper with Jesus. It's about the best answer I can give you. So they returned back to where they had the Last Supper, you know, some 40 days earlier to that upper room. And I like that. Why do they have an upper room? Upper rooms were usually a place that was kind of away from the hubba hub of daily activities. Sometimes in those uh, Middle Eastern areas, those upper rooms were higher, which meant that the wind would blow and it'd be cooler up there. They would do storage up there. Some of those rooms were enclosed, so it was a larger open room rather than cubby holes for the, for the people down below. So that was the upper room. I often thought it'd be nice if we would maybe change the name of the third floor. Instead of saying third floor, we might call it the upper room. We have the staff, staff offices up there. We've got two beautiful guest rooms, a beautiful restroom up there with laundry facilities, a living area, a kitchen up there, a 4,000-volume library up there. We have a teaching area up there. People go up there for study, get alone with the Lord, prayer, Bible study, groups, etc. What a wonderful time. Third floor, maybe. I don't know. Upper room. Back to the Scripture. <clears throat> You're saying, is he giving us a hint, guys? I don't know. Maybe it is. So they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. And you're saying, good, I'm glad we got through all of that. Get on with the real meat. Well, I'd love to do that, but I don't have a lot of time to go through these guys. But I will tell you, if you count them, there's not 12. There's somebody missing from the pack. Who's missing from the pack of apostles? Judas Iscariot, so there's 11. Now, here's what I don't have time for. I don't have time today to go over each one of these guys, who they were, what their ministry was, and how they were martyred and how they died. 
but I will do this for you. I've done this research on it, and I will give you a Reader's Digest version of it. If you will just email me and say, hey, pastor, would you give me the list of those guys, and I will add two more people to the list. I'll tell you a little bit more about Judas Iscariot, and I will tell you about the new kid on the block, Matthias. So if you want that, you order it. It's free. Email it. I'll shoot you an email back. But it's important for you to know. Listen, listen, listen. We're going to now begin to learn who were the church planters before the church was even born, who are going to be the, the oh boy, I was going to say the word birthers, but I better not. All right, who are the planters of this? All right, who made this thing happen? All right, so we're getting ready for that. And you're saying, why is that so important? Remember, the church is precious to Jesus. He gave his life for the church. In fact, the church is referred to as his bride. So all of that that brought the local churches into existence then came from a group of guys. And that's why it's important that this is in here. All right, so it's starting out with the power. It's, then it's moving into the motivation, the proper motivation. Now it's moving into the planters and who they were. So look through that. So verse 14, it says, These all, the guys I just mentioned in verse 13, with one mind, I love that, one mind, one dream, one team, all right, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. I especially like... This is a whole sermon in verse 14. They all were together, not just the 12 guys. They were also with the others. They were continually, which means they didn't do it just one time. I believe that from the time Jesus, um, how can I say, ascended till the time that the Holy Spirit came down was 10 days. So I think at this particular time, they were meeting frequently within a 10-day period. So they were continually, and notice they were devoting themselves to Double coupons at the Jerusalem marketplace. No, they weren't. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And I loved it because it wasn't a man's club. It wasn't a good old boy's club. You see women that were involved in here, all kinds of women. And then you see part of his family. Jesus' family was there. So it was kind of like a great group of people. And let me put it in two words. A praying fellowship. A praying fellowship. All of the same mind. Go to verse 15. So in the midst of this, it says, at this time, Peter stood up. Was it the first of 10 days, the second of 10 days? Was it the 10th of the 10 days? I really don't know. But I think during that time, not just one moment, Peter stood up. He was one of the apostles. He was the most spoken, speaking one. So he might be the uh, first among equals. Stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about, now they kind of tell you how many, 120 people were gathered together. So that's the 12 and then the others. And he said to them, verse 16, Houston, we've got a problem. Now, I know it doesn't say that in your Bible, but that's about what he's going to say here at this point. Because now the problem is, you've got 11 apostles, and one's gone, and he's going to describe why this guy left and how he's gone, blah, blah, blah. And then they're going to pick another one. And some of you might be saying, well, why pick another one? I mean, 11's good enough. God could do, you know, what does it say? One man, one God can do mighty things. I, I agree with all that stuff. But why did he need 11? It's critical. Because in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, it talks about the apostles sitting on 12 thrones. So you can't have 11 thrones with apostles and one little kind of an empty one that's over to the side. There had to be 12. So there is a reason that they had to have this to make the number 12. Now, those of you that want to go deeper, 12 is the number of government. You'll also find 12 um, tribes of Israel. So you've got 12, 12 going on, a lot happening in God's economy of ruling and reigning and what happens in the future. So you can't just live with 11. You had to have 12. And they got a problem. And now he's explaining it. He says, the scripture hath fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So our thought now is there's a problem because of Judas, 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Later on, it's going to talk about how, G- how Judas died, and it's necessary, verse 21, that we basically get another witness, verse 22. But I want to come back to verse 16, because this is pretty critical. Some of you that are on the outside of the faith, you probably are wondering, what about all this inspiration? I mean, couldn't some great guys get together and write all of this? How did this all happen? I wanted you to know that whatever scripture is found in our canon of scripture right here, this was not arbitrary selected by a bunch of people that had a a good uh, night of wine drinking. These were people that followed a strategic plan of understanding what scripture was inspired by God. And the inspiration of God, a good illustration of it, is found in verse 16. So you may want to mark this in your Bible. Verse 16 says, again, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which is now prophecy. That means Old Testament scripture had to be fulfilled during those uh, little uh, days there when Jesus and Judas was around, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. If you want it, you can underline that phrase. So that's telling you whatever David spoke that then became written, that was all given to him by the Holy Spirit. So we can all agree that not everything that David spoke and did was Holy Spirit inspired, was not given to him by the Holy Spirit. But that which is contained in Scripture was given to David by the Holy Spirit, so he spoke by a supernatural um, inspiration of God. Now, in this context, David spoke of Judas and talked about who he was. Now, I like the fact that Luke is trying to bring Theophilus, that's who he's writing to primarily here, up on speed and what's going on here. So he explains who Judas was. You remember him. He was our guide. He, at the same time, he guided those that, or uh, he wasn't the guide. He was the one who guided the others to arrest Jesus, but he was part of our family, part of our little group here, our team that we were a part of. He saw what Jesus did, etc. And then if you will drop down to verse 20, skip over 18 and 19. I will come back to that. Verse 20. So he says, for he was counted among us, received his share in this ministry, for it is written in the book of Psalms. Everybody together, who wrote Psalms? Huh? Who wrote Psalms? Mostly David. Asaph wrote some of it, some others we don't know, but mostly David. So now that's concurring with verse 16 that talks about the Holy Spirit speaking through and to David, which David then recorded. So verse 20 says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, that was Judas, and let no one dwell in it, that was Judas. Let another man take his office, which we'll see in another verse or two. So all of this is coming back to through the mouth of David. Now, those of you that want to write quickly to your own study, go to Psalm, write down Psalm 55, 12 through 15. That's going to tell you about that passage, Psalm 69, 25, Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. Again, this is all you really... If you want to get a, a, a very bird's eye view rather than down in the, the deep here, the bird's eye view is this. We know again that scripture is accurate because what was foretold in the Old Testament that was to be foretold to the New Testament times, it actually happened just like it did and nobody could make that happen. Nobody was following a game plan like the ball players are going to do this afternoon. This was the game plan that the Holy Spirit had happened through David and who the Holy Spirit and the deity all generated to make happen to fulfill prophecy. So when you're holding a Bible right here, this is something we believe in because of not blind faith, but because it's truth and objective reasoning. We can go back to that. So that's what's happening here. Now let's go back to verse um, 18 and 19. I don't know what your your Bible looks like, but my Bible in verse 18, when it starts out, now this man acquired a field. There's a parenthesis there. And at the end of verse 19, it ends with a parenthesis after the phrase field of blood. 
what's happening during here is that there's like a momentary pause of Luke. And what Luke is doing now is he wants to say, okay, Theophilus, you probably weren't around here at this time. I need to let you know a little bit more of what's happening. I told you that he kind of whipped the guys. He brought people to Je- or brought, brought the men to Jesus to betray him, etc. But I want to give you more behind the scenes. Which, for those of you that are new again to this journey, you need to know this. Primarily all that passage is simply saying is this. That Judas was the one who betrayed Christ to the um, chief priests and the elders for 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, that is prophesied in Zechariah. So it's another prophecy. We don't have time to turn there. So he took the 30 pieces of silver. When he saw what was happening to Jesus, it was like, uh-oh, this thing is way out of control what's happening. I do not believe that that time was Judas. He was coming to faith. He was remorseful, quote, repenting or whatever you want to call it. That was not going on at that time. But there was, uh-oh, what's this? Something big's happening right here. And I don't know if I want to be a part of this thing. So he now takes this money. He realizes, I don't want to do this. So he goes back to the... um chief rulers and the, and the um, elders, and he says, here's your money back. And the chief priest said, no, we can't take that money because it's blood money. So they walked away, or they, they took it, and then they threw it down into the temple, or maybe Judas threw it into the temple, and said, we don't want it, so it was on the ground. So now these guys are looking at the money that's on the temple floor that they just given to, to Judas to betray him, and they said, we can't take the money. We gave it to him. It's blood money now. That's why you get the field of blood, blood money. So they said, what are we going to do with this? So they said, all right, since we can't keep it in the temple and use it for temple things, what we're going to do is we're going to buy a field out over here. What field will we buy? A piece of dirt where we can bury strangers, people who die in Jerusalem that nobody knows anything about, why they died, how they died, all that. So we're going to buy, and that field over there looks good. Take that money now. We'll do some good out of it. We'll buy that field. It is called the potter's field. Why is it called the potter's field? The best guess we have is that the dirt where this is traditionally claimed to be is a a particular dirt that is very easy for people to turn into pottery. And when they make that pottery, the potters would go there, dig up that dirt, and they could make the pottery because most of their cookware was pottery stuff. So it's called the potter's field or the field of blood. And he's telling them what's happening. So again, that's what happened to Judas. Suicide at the end. And that's where some of you are going to say, wait, here it says he... God, it's horrible. It's gross here. He falls headlong... Bursts open his middle and his intestines gushed out. I don't know what my my Bible. It's, it's pretty graphic. But some of you remember in the Gospels that said no, he went out to hang himself. If he hung himself, then here it says he fell headlong. How do we make sense out of this? There's a contradiction in the Bible. Let's go home and do something else. I believe it's not a contradiction. I believe both of those things actually happen. I think what happened is that he did go out to hang himself, as it says in the Gospels. Now, when you hang your this is, kids, just do this rope. Rope unties, you fall down. Rope breaks, you fall down. Limb breaks, you fall down. All right, however it happened, they both could have happened and this would have been, and there's no contradiction in the Bible. And you're, Some of you are saying, why could you ever say that when my kids here present? Your kids need to know that there's no contradictions in the Bible, even on stuff like this. So back to this. <clears throat> back to this. <clears throat> you know what, folks? This would be a good time for me to stop. Now, some of you probably would like me to go a little bit further. But if I went a little bit further right now, I would not do justice to the intensity of the meat that's found into how did they select that apostles? What are qualifications to even be an apostle? Are there apostles today? And what are the responsibilities of apostles? Because we, as a church, are built upon the foundation of these apostles. So getting the apostleship right is important for us to know 
about our heritage. So I urge you to come back next week uh, and we'll talk about apostleship. Now, don't, don't pack up just yet. I would like to give you a couple of take-home points. The first take-home point is this. Are you looking and expecting the soon return of Jesus Christ? Am I doing that? We don't know the day nor the hour. We already know that. We kind of know kind of when he's coming back. But boy, when we know they're coming back, we just can't wait. Would you permit me to go back to that military illustration? When the military family hears that their loved one is coming back from deployment, they kind of know the day or maybe the area, the general area on the calendar, then a little bit more towards the day, and then they kind of know maybe when the ship will come in. Or So it's, it's coming down a train of a little bit more facts, a little bit more facts, but once they kind of have that, they can't wait for it. And this is interesting. Some of you that say aloha to your family or your, your military member, they leave, you're already counting the days. They said it was a six month. They said it was a nine month, you know, so it's, you know, they're going to hold it. You know? So we're looking forward to them coming back right off. And, and I never want to take that away from you, although I'll never know the depth of how you have that longing. But wherever that is, I hope you would be mature enough to know that, understand enough that the coming of Jesus Christ is far more important than any other human being. And the writer of Psalm 73 said it best. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth I desire beside thee. In other words, you are my all in all. Are you looking so forward to Christ coming back again? And then secondly, if you are looking for him, how is that changing your thoughts, your talk, and your walk? Are you purifying yourself with that hope? No, not hope, hope he's coming back, but that hope, that, that expectancy of joy. He is coming back. Back to the military. I don't think any of the families, well, I sure hope he comes back. I don't think he'd ever, I sure hope you show up again. I think it's, I have that hope. You are. You're coming back. You're coming back. Come on, give me a big hug. You're coming back. You know, that kind of thing. If you know a little bit about what I'm saying, can you say, "Uh uh-huh? Oh, okay. And that's the same thing. Knowing he's coming back. Talk about purifying yourself, military. I'm sure you just cleaned the house and you mowed the yard and you got your old clothes on, and you go meet them? Nah, you get all cleaned up. That house is spiffy. You got flowers. You got maybe new nighties. I don't know what y'all got. You got all that's necessary so that when that person comes in, you are so excited. Watch this. And that person knows that you were longing for them. You change something knowing they're coming back. And gratefully, Jesus is not going to come back in a bag. He's not going to come back maimed. He will come back scarred. And he is coming back for you. Would you trust him as your savior? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment of spiritual reflection. God is so good. His word is so rich. And every little phrase and word connecting together builds upon a very profound truth. But all that truth still focuses on Christ. And I can't wait to show you that next week, even in the selection of an apostle. But right now, the Lord wants you to be in his forever family. And so you need to reflect backwards and realize that Jesus Christ is God Almighty in the flesh. And what we know of Christ is written in a word that's inerrant and infallible. And totally sufficient for what we need to know to settle our eternal destiny. 
So what do we know? One, we know that we're sinners. If we're humble enough, doesn't take much, we're a sinner. We know that because we've sinned, when we die, we'll spend eternity separated from heaven, of course, but Jesus Christ, the most important, forever. We know that to go to heaven, we've got to be 100% perfect, never have committed a sin, as righteous as Christ. We tell one lie, we can't enter into the future heaven. That may doom us until Jesus says, it's not by your works that get you there, but it's by what I've done for you on the cross. So when Jesus went to the cross, he says, I love you just the way you are. Your works have shown you, first, if they were wicked works, how depraved you are. If they were good works, it shows how prideful you are because you relied on your good works to get you to heaven, and that now becomes a sin. So he says, it's not by your good deeds. So Jesus died on the cross. We're studying all about that now. His death, his resurrection, and today some of his ascension. And that didn't end the the story. That just validated this all as truth. But now what you need to do is to believe that Jesus is the Lord who did die and rise again for you. And by faith alone, you can have eternal life. Now he is going to come back. He's coming back for everybody. There'll be those who trusted in him will spend eternity with him. Then there'll be those who who haven't, and they will spend eternity cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever like a wandering star. So in your own way, would you now just place your simple childlike faith? You don't have to understand it all. All of this may not make sense to you yet, but you know enough that you're ready to trust Christ. That little bit of faith in Jesus Christ is all it takes, like a grain of mustard seed. Would you place it in Christ? Just simply say, Lord, I know I've done things wrong. I thank you for the forgiveness of my sin that I could be born into your forever family and I now have eternal life and I rejoice. Would there be anyone in here today that would like me to pray for them because you've trusted Christ today in here? And for me to know that, I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand. Now, when you do that, no one else is looking around. I'll be the only one that sees it. You'll know you did. I'll know you did. And Christ will know you did. But you need to know that raising your hand won't get you into heaven any more than filling out a card or walking an aisle or anything you do. In fact, when you're indicating to me you're trusting Christ, you've already done it. I'm just already welcoming you into God's family and you're already there. You kind of walk through the door of Christ and you're in. I'm just recognizing, hey, welcome. But I'd like to pray for you. I'd like you to know that you have a pastor, a friend who really cares for you. And then with a room full of people here that would love to be on the journey with you together and get to know you. All right. Is there anyone in here now that's ready to simply say by an uplifted hand, silently, without anyone looking around, that today was the day that you called upon Christ to be your Savior. You put your faith alone in Him and you'd like for me to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand and put it down? Just that quick. Boom, boom. Anyone at all? Put your hand up. Anyone at all? All right, Christians that are here, I know that you are given a voluminous amount of material, some of it real technical, some of it historical, but all of it as accurate as possible to help you build your faith upon truth. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So will you now just check your relationship with the Lord? In a moment, we're going to pass out the cup and the, and the wafer. And we're going to remember the Lord's death until he comes. And when we do, we want to be purified on the inside and holy. Remembering that he did this for us on the cross. He died and he rose again. 
And he now is going to live his life out through us. And that same Lord who died, buried, rose again, and ascended is coming back again. And will we purify ourselves with that hope? Let the Spirit of God speak to you. And brother and sister in Christ, let's all of us respond to the Spirit now and have a life that would make Jesus smile when he returns. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the unadulterated word of God. I thank you that it has caused us to want to dig deeper because it just is like going to the the very heart of the meat, the juiciest part. And so Lord, help us to grow in grace and your knowledge. But Lord, as we have this truth, help us not to go around dividing Christians and becoming so knowledgeable that it puffs us up. But that, Father, we will use this truth not as a weapon or as a toy, but as a tool to build. And so, Lord, I thank you for that and how gracious you are to us. May our hearts be right before you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Oh, 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 oh,